Grace and peace to you this Lord's Day from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Baron Mullis. I'm the pastor of this congregation. And along with our liturgist, the Reverend Megan LeCluse, our director of music, Andrew Sin, and all of our musicians, I am delighted to welcome you to our service of worship. You'll notice in weeks to come, things will look a little differently because we will be transitioning to a true live stream, which will mean that worship will be at 11. You won't be able to watch it anytime you like, but you'll be seeing the congregation actually worshiping together. That will be happening the next few weeks, so pay attention to your uh, weekly e-news and you will find out more. I'd also like to call to your attention an opportunity to engage in mission in Philadelphia this upcoming Saturday with the Urban Tree Connection. You can learn all about it on our church website, and Carl Miller would love to hear from you. With these things noted, let us join together in our responsive call to worship. God commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven the Lord rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Mortals ate the bread of angels. God sent them food in abundance. has given us a sign showing that love is stronger than death. The sign of the cross points to our exodus from bondage to sin. Let us repent, seek God's forgiveness, and enter into new life in Christ. Eternal God, you are the bread of life. You are our source and our sustenance. You are the fount of every blessing. You are the one who breathes our very life into us. And when we fall short of your gracious hope for creation, you are the one who redeems and restores us. With such abundance, our lives should be a continual thank offering. Yet too often, this is not how we live. 
We attempt to amass more than we need. We mistrust the source of our blessings. We turn away. Forgive us, we pray, for our misplaced self-reliance. Teach us again to trust in your mercies new every morning as we offer our prayers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The bread of life God sends is the offering of the only begotten Son. Whoever comes in Jesus Christ shall never be hungry. Whoever believes in him shall never thirst. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ we are forgiven. Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Samuel, in the 18th chapter. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Here ends our first reading. Our gospel lesson is taken from the sixth chapter of John's gospel. We read there beginning at the 24th verse and continuing through the 35th. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
for it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me now, if you will, in just a word of prayer. Let us pray. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A number of summers ago, I decided that our porch really needed a hummingbird feeder. So I selected an attractive blown glass one that had an interesting design with just one place for the hummingbirds to feed. I never saw a single bird. Additionally, the thing leaked sugar water onto the porch, and the ants would travel from miles around to scale the walls for this abundant supply of food. So when spring rolled around again the next year, it seemed reasonable to forego the ant magnet slash hummingbird feeder. But a few weeks later, as I was enjoying my breakfast, I looked out the window and noticed a single hummingbird hovering over the porch, looking at me accusingly with betrayed eyes. I went to the hardware store that day and bought the traditional hummingbird feeder. You know, the round one with the four yellow plastic flowers from which the birds might slurp nectar. And soon after, I saw the hummingbird back. I'm guessing she's a female because she's black and white, though I'm not a bird watcher and I don't have a clue on these things. Not too long after that, I spotted a couple of other birds frequenting the feeder, and I felt like the Mackenzie Scott of the bird world. Birds were coming from miles around to our porch. It had become a destination for hummingbirds, and I was dispensing food with largesse. So you can imagine my horror when, before my very own eyes, the black and white bird began dive-bombing the others and running them all away from the feeder. Bad day, I thought. Well, cut her some slack. Perhaps she's supporting a family. It is July, after all. But then over the course of the next few days, I began to notice a pattern. Every time a smaller bird would pause at the feeder, the larger bird would swoop in for the attack. My porch 
had become the battleground of an all-out bird turf rumble. How disillusioning. I just wanted some hummingbirds to watch with my coffee, and I had the sharks and the jets of the hummingbird world competing to establish dominance over our porch, not realizing, by the way, that in the cabinet over the refrigerator, there was the mother load of hummingbird food in a plastic Ziploc bag. One morning I was looking out at this pitched warfare, and I thought to myself, they just don't know that there's enough. I got to thinking, though, about how much energy that black and white bird is expending on guarding the endless supply of food. It must be exhausting to want worry that some other bird is going to jeopardize the supply. Now, there has always been food in the feeder when she's come. And yet I can't help but realize the real problem is she wants it all. I do realize that this is the animal kingdom, but in an odd sort of way, it makes me think about the story of King David that we heard this morning. David's kingship is, frankly, the soap opera of the Old Testament, and he looks better or worse depending on who is telling the story. The cycle of David's sin and decline is rather lengthy and complicated, uh, so let me see if I can streamline it just a little bit. But you might want to cover your children's ears. The, the Bible is at times an adult book. David, by now he's the king, went out for a walk one night on his porch overlooking the city and spied Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, bathing on her rooftop, though, frankly, peeping might be the better word for what David was doing. Frederick Beekner says, David remembered that first glimpse of her years later in his dotage like she was a peeled pear. David lingered, leering at her, and that lingering, leering turned tragic. She consumed his thoughts. He had to have her. Drunk on power, what the king wants, the king gets. And the king wanted it all. She becomes pregnant, and David becomes terrified that his folly will bring down his kingdom. And so to cover his tracks, he brings her husband in from the battlefield to trick him into spending the night with her so that David's guilt will be covered. Uriah, though, the consummate soldier, refuses to enjoy the comforts of home while his men are on the battlefield. David tries again. The second time, he gets Uriah liquored up before sending him home. And Uriah still exhibits more self-control in his drunken state than the king did. Finally, David sent a letter back to his commanders by Uriah's own hand, ordering that in the heat of battle, all the forces should retreat, leaving Uriah to be struck down. And David's dastardly scheme succeeds. Our reading this morning picks up where, right after the murder of Uriah the Hittite, with the prophet Nathan coming to speak to the king the truth. 
He says, you had everything you could possibly need, wealth upon wealth, and you wanted more. But Nathan says this to the king in story form. You had everything, and you took what little another had from him and vandalized it. Now what would you do with such a person? Nathan lays out a parable of right and wrong, and thus the prophet spoke to the king and confronted the problem of his sin. But David, not recognizing himself in the story, only recognizing the injustice of it all, intoned the verdict. One who would do such a thing deserves death. And then Nathan strikes. You are the man. You have sinned, and there will be consequences. And David confesses his sin. David confesses his sin, and God relents. Now, God does not promise to spare David from the direct consequences of his actions, but neither will God join the pile on. God determines to stand by David. But unlike the hummingbird world, where birds can flit and joust and simply find another feeder, the consequences of David's greed and self-serving behavior are real, and they are severe, and I will not go into further detail, but he very nearly loses everything. Which brings us around to sin. We vastly underestimate sin in the way we often talk about it. We're fascinated, sometimes morbidly, with behaviors, the symptoms, while neglecting the root cause, the condition. David's story highlights well the reality that it is the condition of sin that leads to the symptoms, not the other way around. And our self-destructive clinging to the condition of sin matters greatly to God because God loves us and God wants only good for us. It matters to God if we seek wealth upon wealth, and I'm not talking about hummingbirds anymore, while neglecting those whose needs are not being met due to our own abundance. It matters to God if we lie and deceive in order to cover up our own failures. No wonder then that sin is classically understood as separation from God and from each other. Because when we behave thusly, how can humankind ever truly be in communion with one another like this? We have a solid history of not owning up to sin. Indeed, we have a solid history of hiding sin. Ever since Genesis, we've been trying to cover it up. In the first sinner's case, quite literally, and ever since Genesis, God has been seeking to make it right. The Hebrew scriptures are the story of God intervening in human history to repair the narrative, to repair the breach, to deal with the consequences of sin. That is the best 
truest definition of judgment in the Old Testament sense that I've ever heard, that the judge is the one who comes to make things right. And God, the injured party, actively works to make things right. Because that's what a good judge does. A good judge makes things right. The Bible projects a vision of a world floating on such endless generosity that we only need to rely on the living God, the Holy One of Israel, who has given us bread in the wilderness and bread all the rest of our lives so that we might lay aside our need to grasp for more, our need to crush the competition, our frenzied pursuit of securing our future. It's almost otherworldly, this vision, because it's the vision of creation the way God wants it to be. It is creation relying on the constant goodness of its creator, and as such, living in communion with one another. That is what Jesus is trying to get at in the story that we read this morning, and it is the opposite of the David narrative, and frankly, the narrative in which we are tempted to live much of the time. The Gospel writer, John, loves to tell the Gospel story in a sweeping arc. Nothing is ever short in John. And he follows up the story of the feeding of the 5,000 with this story that we read today, with a crowd getting in the boat and chasing Jesus and the disciples. It's Grand Theft Boat in the first century. And when they finally do catch up with him, Jesus turns to them and says, Look, I know you're only here because of the bread. Well, actually, that's a little bit of a paraphrase. It's more like a sermon. They've come seeking a sign, and instead Jesus gives them a sermon on the bread of life. Jesus does that a lot in John's Gospel narrative. You ask for a sign, and you get a sermon instead. But with this crowd, they actually seem to want the sermon. They seem to lean into it. They want more. They want to know what it is to do the work of God. And Jesus goes on. I am the bread of life, he says. I am all you need. It is a vision of redemption, of a life lived fully and wholly. It is, yet again, the message that God has been trying to impart from Genesis to the Gospel to now, that God is all we need. The claims of the gospel on our lives, the claims that come along with being God's chosen, they reflect a task that is at once blessing and challenge. But it's so seductive to trust in things instead of God, isn't it? That's why it doesn't do to make an idol out of anything, including, frankly, our own teachings from time to time. That's 
why the followers of Jesus are called to trust in God alone, not to place our faith anywhere else. We don't even have faith, or we shouldn't, in the doctrine of the church. We don't have faith, or we shouldn't, in our own ability to avoid sin to carry the day. No, we have faith in a person. A person who gave himself for us, who wants to give himself for us. That is the very antithesis of the me-first mentality of the hummingbird turf wars and the Davidic drama and, frankly, much of what pushes us to race, 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 to get ahead, to grasp it more, never trusting that God will be enough. I am the bread of life. Jesus says, inviting us, challenging us, blessing us to trust in something lasting and reliable. Jesus is inviting us to trust in the goodness of God. I am mightily aware of the competing claims for the message of the gospel. Some would make the gospel a transaction. Do this and avoid hell. They might even get it down to something that doesn't quite look like a transaction, but really is. Pray this, and you'll have eternal life. But that's not how grace works. It's a free gift. Some peddle a prosperity gospel. If you follow God, you can trust that you will be prospered by God's hand. There was a popular book called The Prayer of Jabez a number of years ago. It's a classic example of prosperity gospel. Others still would rob the gospel of any message by reducing it to nothing more than psychology and sociology. These behaviors exhibit this anxiety, and Jesus is the cure. To all of these competing claims, to all of these counter-narratives to the grace of God, Jesus says instead simply, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. It is a call to God as God has made God's self known. The God who walked with them in the desert. The God who chastened them through the prophets and brought them home again when their attention was turned away from the least among them. I am the bread of life is a call to remember that when God has given us everything, that we cannot hoard God's abundance and believe that we are living the gospel. I am the bread of life is an invitation to live our lives trusting that faith in Jesus is all that we need. Trusting in Jesus is living into the promise that, like God with David, Jesus will always be there for those who trust in him. Fred Craddock told a story about teaching a preaching workshop 
with the Catholic priests sometime after the Second Vatican Council when enormous changes had been made in worship and theology in the Catholic Church. Father Jean Monahan, Craddock remembered, addressed the body attired in nothing more than a white t-shirt and white shorts and said, I am 54 years old. I have spent most of my adult life with my back turned toward the congregation as I ministered to the altar. Now, the church says, I must turn around and face the people. I have spent most of my life hiding between the pots of incense and candles, doing my work as a clergyman. And now, the church says, come out and be with the people. I have spent most of my life saying the Mass in Latin, and now the church says, speak English so the people will understand. And on and on Father Monaghan went, describing the changes. When he came to the end, he said to the priests that were gathered, as you can see, I have been stripped of almost everything. All I have left is God. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us together confess what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The worship God blesses is honest and personal a broken and contrite heart. When we give of ourselves to God, our hearts are changed for good. Let us present our tithes and offerings.
presence and take not thy spirit from me, O Lord. And take not thy spirit from me, O Lord. O take not thy spirit from me. Salvation, I will teach transgressors, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Shall be converted, converted unto thee. I will speak of thy salvation, I will teach transgressors, and all the sinners shall be converted, shall be converted, converted. Oh, oh. 
God of tears, you are the giver of joy. Hear us as we pray for the sick, for those with chronic illness, for those who have life-threatening conditions, and for those with inadequate medical care. Bring the healing we need. Hear us as we pray for all who are hungry, for those who live in regions of drought and famine, for those who cannot afford nutritious food, and for the vulnerable who are not adequately fed. Give us the food we need. Hear us as we pray for those who grieve, for those who mourn a loved one, for those whose communities are no more, and for those who cannot imagine a joyful future. Give us comfort to restore hope. Hear us as we pray for the world's victims, for those who are caught in violence, for those who are trapped in other self-seeking, for those who suffer from neglect, grant us freedom from all evil. God of the poor and the poor in spirit, we pray for your help against all that oppresses as we look forward to the kingdom you have promised and are bringing even now through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things and the prayer he taught us, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
I am the bread of heaven, says Jesus. That is enough. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.